0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian. My name's Eric. and I'm Alec. Wait, who's this Alec kid? This Alec <laughs> kid is your
1: research director in for Justin McCartney, who's out of town right now. So, hey, everyone.
2: Welcome to the podcast, Alec. We're excited to welcome. Uh, I think you're
0: the fourth person now to co-host an episode. So, Very welcome exciting. to the welcome
2: to the exclusive Titan family.
0: Yeah, we have uh, we have the in the club, so just our podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, So,
2: the first thing I have to say to you is make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, share it with your friends, engage with us on social media at Flying the Wall Pod, or shoot us an email at Flying the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you as always, and we do like, retweet, and follow back. So, make sure that is your top priority of the week. Now, on this pod, you might have noticed that uh, we had a very special guest. Uh, to this campus on Monday. Christian, tell us a little bit about uh, what special occurrence uh, happened earlier this week.
0: So we had not only one special guest, we had like 50. It was like Georgetown student Christmas, as I've been describing it to my (laughs) father. Um, Essentially what Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service did this week is we had an entire symposium on the vision of President Bill Clinton. Uh, So he had, you know, four, four different panels. We had a couple of different other election night events. Um, watch parties, uh, which all led up to a keynote address and Q&A with President Bill Clinton. Uh, So if you were wondering why people were standing out in front of Healy all night, that is why. Um, I can't believe you listened to this podcast and missed it, uh, if you did. Um, But it was an incredible event, and we were lucky enough to have a couple of people um, who worked in uh, the Clinton White House onto our podcast. To say they worked for Bill Clinton is a bit of an understatement. They were like top dogs. (laughs) Yeah, and not only did they work for Bill Clinton, they you know had illustrious careers afterwards and before as well. Um, so these are some of our biggest guests. Aaron, do you want to talk about who they are? Oh, they
2: are so cool. Uh, I'm going to talk about the first. Alec will tell you about the second. The first is I've been describing everyone because like Medium was a dream. I've been describing to everyone as like the most genuine human being in politics that I've ever met. His name is James Carvel, uh, and he was the mastermind behind Clinton's 1992 campaign. Uh, a campaign that many people consider to be uh, a watershed in how campaigns are actually run, just totally transformed the game in terms of its its use of data and its use of messaging and its use of uh, field and just everything that it was able to do just sort of ushered us into uh, the modern era of campaigning and sort of revolutionized the whole game, uh, at least until Obama 08. I I think every campaign uh, since 92 is sort of built on that. Uh, and been in this modern era so fascinating guy to talk to and you guys will love uh, to hear some of the stuff he has to say
1: and our second guest is uh, John Podesta that John Podesta who's been that
2: John Podesta that John
1: Podesta who's been in the news uh, more recently for his work on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign but he's been in Clinton world for a very long time he actually started in the Clinton administration at the very beginning as a staff secretary Uh, and eventually worked his way up by the last uh, two or three years of the administration to be President Clinton's chief of staff. Uh, He's also credited with handling a lot of both policy and political issues. So we're going to talk to him a
0: little bit today uh, on today's pod about his work in the Clinton administration. Can I just say going from staff secretary to chief of staff is a huge deal. Insane. Uh, They are both incredible incredibly gifted uh, politicos, and we are very excited to have them on the
2: podcast. And Christian, I have gone back and forth over the last few days over the concept of, is John Podesta and even James Carville, are these the two biggest guests we've had on the podcast in I terms of so. name recognition? I See, I, I will always back up my boy Martin O'Malley, but I, I see the argument for these two as well, because like we said, these, these guys are huge and they know their stuff, so we are blessed to be in their presence.
0: Yep. Uh, so stay tuned for those interviews. They are To say they are incredible isn't genuinely an understatement. I think they are some of the best work that this podcast has done. Um, So transitioning into our Tweet of the Week, uh, we are all Clinton uh, this week. So um, this tweet comes from at Bill Clinton, who tweeted on November 3rd, uh, waking up this morning, grateful for being elected 25 years ago today, alongside my friend at Al Gore, honored to have served our great country, to which Al Gore at at al gore followed up and said thanks at bill clinton it was a privilege to serve our nation with you for those eight years along with our team we were able to do a lot of good for a lot of people what a bromance right it's pretty cute um so um that is our tweet of the week um and fun to see that they like still tweet at each other even 25 years later goals right
2: hopefully christian responds to my ats in like (laughs) 25 years
0: i don't think twitter will be a thing by then it's true we'll have a new thing my like space message space message (laughs) trademark that (laughs) um so up next we also
2: have another classic segment for you all and it is our gear grinding segment of the week now as many of you know uh we just came out of election night 2017 on tuesday in which uh well i don't think the projections uh quite match the results. Uh, That's an understatement. (laughs) There's a big uh, Democratic victories across the board uh, in a lot of races that seem tightly contested or were swinging the other way. So our gear grinding segment uh, this week is going to be polls. And I'll just throw that out there and someone can jump on it. Put
0: me in. Okay. Um, So my biggest issue with polls is, and in fact, Bill Clinton talks about this in his um, address, Um, but essentially... Um, My biggest issue with polls is that people take them as the final word, uh, the written in stone kind of thing. It's like, oh, well, they're tied. So, you know, two months from now when the actual election occurs, uh, you know, the vote will be close. Um, And I think Bill Clinton's, I'm going to butcher his quote, so I'm going to paraphrase here. Um, But essentially what he said was um, polls are just um, a showing of how many people we need to move. Um, So when he, you know, when he was running in an in uh, the 1992 election, he jokes that um, he literally would run. Um, And, you know, he worked his, you know, butt off to basically move the polls in the direction that he wanted them in. Um, And so essentially, you know, his shop took polls as just, you know, okay, this is what we are working with, and this is what we need to fight for. Um, And I think that's a really a much better way to look at polls than, you know, the final say, because people's votes move constantly. Um, And polls are not always a great snapshot of what, the actual general public is looking at. Um, and so I think the American public should stop thinking about polls as the final word and start thinking about them as, um, you know, this fluid thing that campaigns are just working towards or working for. So Bold proclamations.
2: I agree.
1: But what, <coughs> what grinds my gears about polls is how people interpret uncertainty and the margin of error. It drives me crazy. So say you have a poll that's like 50-50, but it's a plus or minus Three margin of error, and then some anchor on TV says, So this could just as easily be a six point 53 to 47 poll. That's not how margins of error work. Hmm. Um, and as a math major with two statistics classes under my belt, I can vouch for this. (laughs) The way margins of error work is that 50 50 was that poll's like best estimate of where these two candidates are at right now. If you go three points on either side, they are 95% confident that the race is actually somewhere in that margin, but it is less likely that you're three points out than at their actual like sample mean would be the technical term, that 50-50. So it drives me crazy that people are like, anyone, if you're at 50-50, you might as well be at 53-47. That's not how margins of error should be interpreted. And it drives me crazy that that's how cable news portrays it.
2: I'm an econ stat right now, and those words meant very little for me. So I'm going to have to go back and study for uh, my next exam. Uh, But for me, I guess, uh, and we tweeted about this, but the whole podcast team went to see a live recording of Can He Do That? Shout out Alice and Michaels and the whole fantastic production team there, because we absolutely love that podcast. Uh, But one of the most interesting things that I said, I believe it was by, was it by Bob Woodward, or it might have been David Farenthold, but... One of them made a comment about polls being uh, a snapshot of a moment. And I think this sort of ties into what Christian was talking about in terms of being that number that you can move, that sort of fluid um, idea of where you're at. So you can work to change that number. And I think that snapshot of a moment is a great way to describe it because, you know, it's not where you're going uh, and it's not where you were. It's, you know, it's basically a human uh, exercise about, you know, what is last on your mind, what impression were you left with at the time you filled out this poll? Um, and you know, I'll echo all the sentiments that the amount of, um, the amount of, uh, stake we put into these polls, uh, is, is, uh, I think a bit overblown and uh, I think there's Especially a lot Especially outlier polls. Yeah. And, and people will be like, oh, there's this one poll that puts, uh, so-and-so up 10 points. Like, yeah, it's one poll, you know? And, and it's better to look at trends in aggregate than, than just one. Uh, although I will say, I'm, uh, it grinds my own gears when I give into the temptation to, to put too much faith in, in a poll or a projection. So I think it's easy to do, but uh, I think it's something we collectively
0: all need to overcome. The uh, uh, TLDR of this entire conversation is stop freaking out on Twitter, everyone.
2: Uh, <laughs> um, no, don't stop, because I really enjoy <laughs> some of the stuff that goes on, on Twitter when people get a little too heated about polls.
0: Um, okay. So, uh, we are, Aaron, you want to introduce James Carville since you have a little bit of love for him.
2: I was actually going to segue perfectly. So if you took a poll of just me, of my favorite people (laughs) in politics right now, because it's a snapshot of a moment, I would say James Carville because he's really, really cool. And I had a great time. Uh, Alec and I sat him down and had a great conversation with him about his role in 92, sort of what he remembers from being on the trail, how he contributed his relationship with the president, uh, or the soon to be president. Um, And it was a great, great, great uh, learning moment for us, people who want to eventually do sort of politics and campaigns uh, to see, you know, what it's like to be at the top and what it's like to to design a really a a work of art, a presidential campaign. So with that, uh, let's welcome on James Carville. And immediately afterward, we'll get to John Podesta. James Carville, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, good. Good. We're really excited to have you here as part of the Clinton 25 celebration. Uh, we want to simply talk to you a little bit about your role in the 92 campaign. Uh, as we know, if you've seen War Room uh, or uh, <laughs> if you've heard anything yeah. about this little bit of history, uh, it really is a gem what you were able to do with that campaign. So we're excited to, to talk to you a little bit today about that.
3: Right. I'm a, You know, it's a fond memories of 92. <laughs> you know, it's an it's a interesting okay. time and uh you know a lot of interesting people the, the, the thing that most if you ask me if i reflect back on it what is the kind of best thing about it, it it's really the relationships right i mean and, and i don't know if there's six or seven people from that campaign i still talk to or six times a week wow. wow and uh you know when you you're in a in the cauldron, in the middle of something like that, and you're doing everything together. You know, you wake up together, you work together, you go out at night together, you right. get up again, and, you know, it's and it's the intensity, and I, I just, uh, you know, it's d- just something y'all look back on and, I, I, you know, just stay connected. We're going to Little Rock in two weeks and having another, you know, a lot of reunions. Here. You <laughs> get over your reunion a lot, but it's a... Uh, it was a great memory, and it was some really, really, you know, talented, committed people that kind of came together, and it was fun being a part of it.
1: Well, you know, that campaign was successful in no small part for its three main messages, the change versus more of the same, the economy's stupid, and don't forget health care. Uh, so much so that it was written on the wall in the campaign war room.
2: Right. I believe um, it was called a haiku by George <laughs> Right, right. Um,
1: so how did you guys come up with the message that resonated so well? Who was in the room? Did you poll test it, just run with it?
2: Well,
3: we'd yeah. gone through the primaries, and we knew that there was a change election, and, and you know, that that then-government Clinton represented change. Right. And I knew that we had a lot of smart people that wanted to do a lot of clever Smart things, and I didn't want him doing a lot of clever, smart things. I wanted to stay focused on the thing that really mattered That's to people, yeah. you know. And so that was it. Uh, and uh, and also that you know, healthcare was an emerging issue. So don't forget, it was just a, it was a reminder. You know, I teach my students that political communication is the world's only endeavor that you multiply by subtracting. It actually doesn't make sense, but the less you say, the more you heard. Right. And, it, and it, if I say it, it sounds easy, but it's very difficult to execute because everybody wants to do something brilliant when you just have to, the brilliant thing is to stay simple. Keep it simple, right. Right.
2: Uh, so we've seen a lot of different relationships between campaign managers and the top operatives on a campaign and the candidate they're working for uh, over the last, you know, however long we've been uh, focusing on politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your working relationship with President Clinton when you were on the campaign. Uh, well,
3: it was, it's kind of interesting because in a presidential campaign, he's gone most of the time. Right. And I, in Paul Begall with his mm-hmm. night, but basically, except exception when his, his son was born you know, we had conduits on the plane and we would, the information would come in to us and then we'd kind of relay it and schedule when, you know, you had to, you had to have a lot of sort of coordination between the headquarters and the plane and then, you know, he was curious as to what was going on with the television by, the radio by. So, it, it was, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of moving parts there. And then, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, is like basketball, a lot of things that are happening away from the ball. right? And, my job was to to some extent to keep everybody on the plane so to really the speed writers could do their job the researchers could do their job the schedulers could do their job the targeting people could do their job the field people could do their job right. and I just tried to keep it in a in a plane where talented people could be in an environment to do what they do best and that was really what my kind of job was I, I ran a you know, went to see a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons.
2: Right. <laughs> when you sat down in the strategy room, um, where where was the where were the uh, ideas coming from? Where, did uh did the president have a lot of well, he had, yeah, he
3: that? had a he had a bucket load of ideas. That spent, you <laughs> How know did you decide but which just most ones were good? most of the time people think that like political consultants like tell candidates what to say, when the truth is, is we just begging them things not to tell say, them. you know, it's like, please don't say that, you know, like please don't do that. List, yeah. yeah, drop it off the <laughs> list, don't go to the rope line, you know, cause it, you know, and, and he, like anybody, he, he liked to repeat the charge. He used to drive was crazy. They say I raise taxes, but let me tell you something. Don't say that. Don't repeat the charge. Right. Uh, and you know, he was obviously you know, maybe the brightest man ever and I, Modern American politics, and so he had a lot of different ideas too. It wasn't like he was just going to say, "Okay, well, you guys tell me what to say, I'm going to go out and say it." But right. you usually could, you could, you could convince him of, of, of something. I mean, he was open to, to, to doing it, and you know, and you don't have time. You I mean, it's things are happening like that, and uh, you know, you, you get set pretty early in the day.
1: So of course that campaign uh, was very well run, but no campaign is perfect. Uh, looking back on it, is there one mistake that you made that you uh, wish you had done something differently?
3: Yeah, we did. Oh God, we did a lot of things. <laughs> you know, but one of our researchers, uh, David Marinus, wrote an article saying that Clinton had raised taxes 125 times. No, actually, it's 129. <laughs> uh, but the president on his own went to Mississippi. like eight days ago, before the election, that that wasn't the smartest thing we ever did. Um, we didn't try in Nevada and we won and we tried in North Carolina and we lost. So that showed how, how to some extent, our targeting was a little bit off. Uh, we, there were many times that we went to the rope line we stepped on a story that we had scheduling glitches. I mean, I, I, there's no, you know, when I, I try to explain to people the Houston Astros made a bucket load of errors and mistakes. And, okay, you know, a lot of things went wrong, but at the end they won. I mean, right. every, you know, everybody that makes mistakes, is, you know, this is not a mistake free business You know, the idea is that you make try to make fewer and smaller mistakes, and it, it kind of pays off if the other people make more and bigger mistakes. But, yeah, a lot.
2: Uh, so in a similar vein, what was the biggest challenge? I'm sure there are many in any race, you know, everything is a unique um, everything has a obstacles. So what
3: was the biggest challenge with yeah, It, it kind of one of them was the, the president and, and, and Mrs. Clinton had built up a lot of relationships. I mean it, and I think this probably something that happened guys I think so right. a lot a lot of times they had the Arkansas people and you had the campaign people and the fobs and the research people and the Georgetown people and the, you know uh, and so a lot of it was anticipating. It, you know, you would call people and buy them into what you were doing. Say, look, this is what we're doing. i a, a lot of internal politics. And and people that get into the campaigns, they they think it's all, it's not a human endeavor. Right. It, it's an algorithm. Running it's it's, it's, it's yeah. running it smoothly or something. But you got to anticipate what people are going to do, where they're going to go. And you got to, you know, and somebody's just not going to, you're not going to walk in. To you know, highly educated people, I've been knowing them all their life, and said, "Well, guess what? We got this guy from LSU that's going to come in and tell us all what to do." Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, it's it doesn't life doesn't work like that, right. and so you'd be have to get them on the phones and say, look. This is what we're doing. I, I, you know, let me tell you what the polling is, and you, you, you I spent a lot of time right. buying people into the process right. and trying to anticipate what was going to happen. And there were people on the staff that had relationships that most of them that predated mine. And so I did, you know, it's, you know, to be frank about it, it's a lot of ass kissing running the presidential campaign. I'm sure.
1: Um, So we're close running out of time, but just quickly to wrap up, um, take us inside the war room on the day before the election. What was it like? Uh, What was the final push like? uh, And what were you doing as the campaign manager?
3: Well, you, you know, first of all, one of the things and i did this in campaigns i always wanted a like a, a big big uh almost like a gym floor it was an ideal place to run a campaign. i didn't want an office i didn't want to encourage meetings i wanted people to feel like if they wanted to talk to me and had an idea they could come up and do it mm-hmm. and i did not restrict access if you remember that i talked about no i did generally run as a Fifth floor, and that's the funkies And the sixth floor is the finance people. And then the seventh floor is the something that you know, the field people. And then you know, by the time you get to the fourteenth floor,
4: you know, that's
3: <laughs> there's poor people. That's the god pod. You <laughs> it know, makes it a little hard to get up there, right? And and so, in, in by by that time, because my function was more strategy. And by the day before the campaign, you're just burning off nervous energy. I mean, you're just calling people and calling the governor you know, what does Georgia look like? Or calling John, bro, how we doing in Louisiana? You Imagine know, calling people around. But yeah. but the the field people are really starting to kick in at that point. There's not
2: really much for you to do. There's not much. Done. Yeah, yeah. It's
3: the, it's the haze in the ball. How did
2: that feel to just know it was entirely out of your hands? You know, it, it, it,
3: it's it's just a lot of tension. And, it, you know, it sort of builds up to election night. And, you know, you that because, God, if we remember the, the – phony speech, the concession speech I gave, I mean, that's exactly what you're thinking. Yeah. You know, you're just off the top of your head, but God lo- you know, if we lose, what's life gonna be like? Right. <laughs> it's gonna be like hell. And you know, if we win, then life is gonna be like this. And, uh, and it was an election night, it was just, you know, brilliant fall night in Little Rock, it was, it was special. <laughs> so you
2: spent the night in Little Rock watching uh, Oh movie. yeah, yeah,
3: I lived in the Capitol Hotel. And how did that <laughs>
2: yeah how does how is that night? what's one memory you remember from that night above all else
3: you know somebody said it's true that it, you you know for one night you you know when you know when in presidential campaign you get to breathe the most rarefied air on earth mm-hmm. you know so in my lifetime one night i got to breathe the most rarefied air. and the you know, people that you you've been with you work with and you know they it's election night, and you know they have a card-off place where you're right there, and, you know, it's fine. I mean, it'd, you know, be, it'd be really stupid to say it's not fun. <laughs> I was thinking about all the campaigns I'd done before and the losses and the heartache and, you know, some wins and, you know, relationships. I was 48 right. on election day in 1992. That's I mean amazing. I always tell people I you know, I was forty seven years before I was James Carville. You don't understand <laughs> that. <laughs> well,
2: thank you so much for, for sharing these amazing memories. We gotta we gotta run so we get you to your next yeah. event on time, but thanks good so much deal. for spending time all right, with
3: you. It's great. I'd love to be around young people I teach college myself. So that's great. You guys are go all y'all go for in life. Thank you, James. Do James you Carville. Right.
2: You're listening to the flagship geopolitics podcast Fly on the Wall and we'll be right back. What'd you guys think? I thought that was absolutely incredible. James Carville is a genius.
0: I just like the way he speaks. I mean, I think he's just like, he's so candid and he's so so funny and he's just like, yeah, like, I'm just going to say what I think and you're going to live with it. And his accent. And what's amazing to me is he kind of came out of nowhere. Like he had done some
1: Senate campaigns before, but it wasn't until early 1991 when he did uh, that Senate special election that he was really on the map and then he came on to like a, uh, kind of small startup presidential campaign that wasn't expected to go anywhere and turned it into one of the greatest campaigns of all time, which I think is pretty remarkable.
2: Well, I think this segues nicely into our Politicos as Real People this week. Uh, I'm taking the place for Justin here. Uh, but James Carville is actually our Politicos as Real People. Because uh, immediately after recording this podcast, he went into Copley Formal Lounge, which is this nice event space on campus, uh, to be a part of this Clinton 25 panel about the 92 campaign. Uh, and while everyone else was in these nice tailored suits with fine, fancy ties and dress shirts and cufflinks, uh, here comes James Carville with his Louisiana state university sweater, uh, and jeans and a hat, uh, and just looked like a regular Joe up there. And I loved it. What a guy, what a man, what a confidence, uh, just truly a unique character in politics.
0: Definitely. Um, so transitioning a little bit into our political fun fact, because we're just doing it all in one segment today. Uh, um, so coming out of the Clinton administration in 2000, um, the George W. Bush administration was on their way to moving in. Um, and in fact, all of the keyboards in the EEOB, the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, uh, had the W key taken off by Clinton administration staffers uh, because, of course, George W. Bush was coming in for president of the United States.
1: Now, if that, came, if that order to take, those, uh, to take the Ws off the keyboard came straight from the top, who would have given that directive, Aaron?
2: That is a great transition. That was exactly what I was thinking, so I'll jump in. Uh, that would have come from the chief of staff at the time, who was Mr. John Podesta. Who, Whoa! <laughs> who's going to be our next guest. Now, John Podesta was, I believe, the fourth chief of staff in the Clinton White House? Yeah, the yeah. fourth and final. The fourth and final. So he took over in 1990, ooh, I do want to get this wrong, eight, eight nine, eight, eight. Um, and then served throughout the end of the administration and was there for uh, a lot of interesting... Uh, policy fights, a lot of interesting uh, turbulence, especially as, uh, as he'll talk about. Um, this is a White House in which the sitting vice president was running for president of the United States and the first lady was running for Senate New York, uh, which is really, you know, a, not a situation you come across every once in a while. So uh, burning questions for us were, uh, how did you keep the White House grounded? How did you stay on message? How did you continue to do your job when, um, for lack of a better word, there's sort of a media circus surrounding two of these high-profile campaigns going on literally within the White House. Uh, So I have tremendous respect for the guy, and I can't wait to hear his thoughts. Yeah, I mean,
0: you guys will listen to him. And I think just in like a 30-second conversation with John Podesta, you realize like how much is going on in his head. Um, He's definitely one of those people that is like too smart for his own words. And like you can tell he's thinking it a million times faster than he's actually speaking. Um, And like he's just like literally limited. Um, by how uh, like how many words he can get out in a sentence. Um, And he's just an incredible person. So we are very excited to talk with him. Um, We're going to start stop talking and have him start talking because he's way smarter than us. Uh, With that, Mr. John Podesta. So Mr. Podesto, welcome to the podcast. We are, you know, beyond excited to finally have you on. Uh, this is uh, this is really great. I'm very excited for this. <laughs> yeah, you're a fellow Hoya, right? You teach at the law
2: uh, Teach the at the law
4: school, law school and then graduate at the law school. Great. My wife's a graduate of the law school. We met there. <laughs> oh, Hoya's accent, welcome back. Yeah, Did you say
2: please. 70% of Hoyas marry other Hoyas? Yeah, so, Hoya romance. There you go. I always hear different statistics about that. <laughs> Some say 66, Yeah, <laughs> about the number.
0: <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so our first question for you, um, Obviously, you assumed, you know, the top staffing job at the White House, um, and you had enough time in the White House to see a couple of different chief philosophies. Uh, So talk to us at first about um, when you came in, what was your philosophy for how the chief of staff should operate?
4: Well, um, yeah, so I was the chief of staff at the end of the administration, Mm -hmm. very different than trying to organize the White House at the beginning. Um, I I have had the opportunity uh, subsequently to... uh, to uh, help President Obama, for example, organize his administration uh, during the course of uh, the transition in in 2008. But uh, I got there um, in uh, in 1993, uh, having spent a fair amount of time on Capitol Hill, uh, but with the major task being trying to kind of pull together staff, organize it, etc., by the time I had become chief of staff and I worked for the three previous chiefs of staff, um, the team was was kind of set. Uh, people knew their roles and knew their jobs, uh, but we needed the discipline to be able to execute in a time of high partisanship. Uh, and I was kind of, I took uh, the helm uh, just as uh, the Ken Starr had made his report to the Hill. We were about to... Uh, face uh, a vote uh, in the House on impeachment and then a, a trial in the Senate. So the most important thing I needed to do was keep people focused, keep them disciplined, uh, make sure that uh, they were doing what the president promised the American people uh, that he would do, which was stay focused on the people's business. And um, I think I was able to uh, do that and uh, as I said, uh, keep people inspired, keep people confident, keep people moving forward uh, and try to get uh, done the people's business, even as we were kind of scrapping around with our friends on Capitol Hill.
2: So we're political nerds here. So we we sort of get the the function of a chief of staff as sort of the gatekeeper to the president Mm -hmm. and, and being that central point for information flow up, down, outwards and all that. But tell us a little bit more about some of the difficulties you faced as that sort of gatekeeper, especially in the time uh, in which you were chief of staff and was a bit turbulent in the White House, uh, how you were able to keep uh, such a firm grasp on everything?
4: Well, you know, I'm a little bit, um, uh, I've, I've had a career that's done both politics and a lot of policy. So I was uh, familiar both in domestic and uh, international affairs, uh, something I've devoted a lot of part of my time to, uh, and my career to uh, environmental policy, etc. I sweated the details and knew a lot about what was going on. It wasn't, I wasn't just relying on, uh, other people, uh, in the white house, but you have a team of people who are really, um, uh, you know, you've got tremendous talent that's been brought together. You don't get to work in the white house and you certainly don't get to stay very long <laughs> if you're a total Uh, so, uh, again, by the time, um, we were in six, in, 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 uh, the president was in office for six years. Uh, we had tremendous talent there. Uh, but you, you still needed to ensure that on a, on a daily basis uh, that you were able to control the uh, momentum uh, of what was going on in the administration, uh, in the dialogue and discussion more broadly with uh, the American public, uh, and had to... Uh, take account of, uh, find opportunities where they existed. Uh, during that last couple of years, we used uh, a fair amount of executive authority to uh, to try to move the country forward, to keep the country on track. Uh, we were in a strong uh, period of economic growth, so that was good. That was something yes, that yeah. we wanted to make sure uh, uh, kept going. But we also wanted to make sure that the fruits of that growth, if you will, uh, were used to help uh, working people to help people uh, who had been left out for uh, the previous uh, uh, decade from uh, being successful uh, in the economy. So we put a lot of effort and energy uh, into that, uh, both working with the White House staff directly and with the cabinet. Um, my um, uh, attitude about uh, being the gatekeeper, as it were, um, uh, Chris Whipple's just done a book on uh, that's pretty interesting that goes and and it's, i think it's the first book that's really written about the role of the chief of staff mm-hmm. uh and he's had the opportunity to interview i think all the living chiefs of staff um uh gatekeeper may be a little bit of a misnomer when it comes to bill clinton because <laughs> um in the end of the day he didn't like to be caged up he really liked uh interacting dealing with a wide variety of people he was uh, you know, uh, omnivorous reader, consumer of information. He knew a lot about, uh, a lot about everything. So I didn't try to keep information, facts away from him. I didn't try to um, uh, ensure uh, that he was only hearing what had been agreed to by his staff. I, I took the opposite attitude, which is um, to try to make sure that he was exposed uh, to uh, and in an orderly way a, f- a fair amount of information a lot of uh, uh, of different kind of input he was a a um, uh, he stayed up late at night he used to call people late at night <laughs> uh, I remember talking to uh, Senator Daschle, who was the Democratic leader at the time that he'd get like virtually a nightly call at two o'clock in the morning from to kind of go over what had happened during the day um, and uh, I thought that was always uh, valuable to uh, give him a sense that uh, he wasn't caged up inside that White House, that he was able to, whether it was talking to his friends in Arkansas, uh, talking to bipartisan uh, leaders on Capitol Hill, uh, talking to um, ordinary people on the rope line, that he had a lot of opportunity to interact with people. Uh, And uh, my job was, was then to kind of distill what he was thinking about uh, and to try to uh, get an operating plan uh, to make sure that uh, when he said this is what we're going to try to do, that we actually got it done. To be uh, tough enough, practical enough uh, to move forward, uh, no matter what the what the you know the those momentary political obstacles were.
0: Definitely. Um, so. Uh We've heard a lot of different uh, chiefs of staff talk on CNN about, you know, some of the biggest moments that they've had in the White House. For you, what was the single most challenging, you know, single moment that you had while you were in the White House, either as chief of staff or just a staffer?
4: Well, (laughs) just
2: a White House (laughs) staffer. Just a a lowly White House (laughs) staffer. Uh,
4: you know, I think that, um, this is going to sound corny, uh, but the, the reality is that there was, uh uh, the being in the white house is a little bit different than any other political job, including working on Capitol Hill, uh, because you can just get so much more done there. You can change the direction, uh, use the resources, uh, of the presidency. You know, you have, uh, not just the white house staff, but the entire cabinet who can uh, take action, move forward. Uh, but there were, there were always, uh, you know a lot of uh, challenges that were there. I think the the toughest um, moments, uh, interestingly, the, I, I talk about this because I, I mentioned that that you know we we had gone through the impeachment saga, uh, but the toughest moments I think for uh, for me were at the outset of the um, military action that was attempting to reverse the ethnic cleansing that was going on in Kosovo.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
4: I think all of the best advisors, uh, all of his top uh, foreign policy advisors, uh, thought that a uh, bombing campaign, uh, including uh, the then Supreme uh, Allied Commander uh, of NATO, uh, West Clark, who went on to uh, run for president, who was, who was, uh, uh, you know, well known to the president and, fr- and, fr- and friends with the president, uh, I think their advice was a bombing campaign would succeed; it would work. Milosevic. Uh, would back down, would back off, uh, would withdraw Serbian troops from Kosovo. Uh, and that didn't occur. <laughs> they doubled down. They put more uh, people on the ground. Uh, and the president had uh, told uh, the American public when we started uh, this enterprise that he thought that uh, it needed to be confronted, uh, that the that Europe couldn't uh, – uh, abide by uh, what was going on uh, in Kosovo and uh, and uh, both the um, uh, human tragedy that was happening on the ground and uh, essentially the forced evacuation of the people uh, of Kosovo uh, at the hands of the, of, of the Serbian military. Uh, but it wasn't working, at least it wasn't working immediately. Uh, and uh, the there was uh I think second thoughts, uh doubts, uh and every day uh there was uh you're putting uh the American military in harm's way, you were uh uh raining down a fair amount of uh firepower on uh on uh on people in a context in which, particularly in an air campaign, there's also a lot of civilian casualties and you have to you have to weigh and uh, understand uh, the tragedy that that entails. Um, but I think that uh, the president was uh, firm in his belief. I remember a meeting in the Oval Office, given that you're the, the flies on the wall. Yeah, there you go. Secretary Cohn, um, Secretary Albrecht, who's here at Georgetown this morning talking about uh, her time as Secretary of State, Sandy Berger, a national security advisor. Uh, were had, had come into the office. They had all uh, just come back from an event, I think, uh, at Ohio State University, uh, in which the public seemed to turn against the administration's tactics and strategies. They were kind of uh, uh, in for uh, a very tough time in this public forum where they were trying to essentially reassure the American public. I think it ended up uh, feeling like the the public wasn't certain about the overall strategy, and um, uh, they were they were clearly shaken uh, by the course and conduct of the war, and the potential need uh, to send uh, ground troops uh, into Kosovo, which the president said he, he didn't want to do, wouldn't do, um, and the uh, uh, president sort of remained. Uh, Certain, calm in that moment. He said, look, you gave me your best advice. I took that advice. We did the right thing. We're going to pursue this policy. And uh, you just do your job. The, the decision to go in and to conduct this air campaign is on my shoulders. And, you know, wow. <laughs> p- pick your chins up right. and go out there <laughs> and execute. And that was, uh, uh, fortunately, I think we, we maintained that pressure uh. Broke some of the lines of control that the Serbians had going into uh, into um, uh, into Kosovo, and eventually uh, Milosevic did back down, um, and uh, the campaign was brought to a successful conclusion. Uh, the uh, the people who had been pushed out were able to uh, return home. Eventually, uh, Kosovo became an independent nation, and uh, Milosevic ended up in in the war crime tribunal.
2: Wow. That's a lot happened in that story, but fascinating insight uh, into the White House. And we have a few more minutes left, but there's one more story uh, that we'd like to see if uh, we can get you to talk about. Um, so you were managing the White House in the time in which the sitting vice president was also running for president. Yeah. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like trying to And the first keep, lady was
4: running for the United States. Yeah. Well, so. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot a lot going on for sure.
2: Um, so what was it like managing the White House in, in which both of those things were happening? And uh, we know there's some tension uh, between Gore and Clinton. You know, Gore wasn't really embracing the Clinton message, sort of distancing himself from the administration. So what was it like uh, trying to keep things uh, all the ducks in a row?
4: Yeah, well, look, I think that um, we were, uh, again, I think it was just uh, more uh, uh, more input into the decision-making process. I think, obviously, uh, the president wanted Vice President Gore to succeed obviously wanted uh, Hillary to go back into the (laughs) U.S. Senate. Uh, But for the most part, I think the way uh, we thought about our role in that uh, was to basically do a good job for the American people to kind of try to make the case that uh, the progressive direction that the president had set forth for the American people uh, should be sustained and should should, uh, move forward. And so I think from his perspective, it was – a matter of really trying, uh, to execute, uh, the, uh, the program that, that he had, uh, tried to put forward, uh, to the American people to try to keep getting substantive success. Uh, in, in those years, we were still, even, uh, again, with, with, a, uh, a partisan divide that maybe is not quite what you see today, but it was pretty bad, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, still trying to find ways to uh, either pressure the Congress, work with the Congress, find ways to uh, to accomplish uh, big things for the American people. Uh, as I said, to keep that economic growth streak alive, to to uh, uh, remind people that we had inherited the largest surpl- uh, the largest deficit in American history, and we're leaving around, office yeah. with the largest surplus in American history, uh, and that people's Uh, lives were getting better, that uh, crime was down, that uh, the environment was cleaner, that uh, most importantly, that wages were going up and that Mm -hmm. middle class incomes were going up and that people, uh, you know, particularly at that period of time, had seen a lot of uh, economic success built around a strategy of uh, doing the right thing uh, in terms of investing uh, in people to provide them with the opportunities they needed to succeed at work. Uh, to try to do it in a fiscally disciplined way so that uh, when times were good you could uh, you you know rather than uh, blowing the s- uh, surplus with with big tax cuts, you husband in those resources to make the right investments for the American people. you know people people uh, need to relearn those lessons every day and we're at, we're <laughs> at a moment where again with the, with the economy, uh, with unemployment low, with the economy uh, doing uh, fairly well, uh, the, the Republicans have come forward with a big um, uh, uh, proposal to cut taxes for corporations and very wealthy Americans, uh, which is a sort of crazy economic theory, uh, and is likely, I think, to uh, result in in uh, both slower growth and and the people in the middle getting squeezed. We are trying to argue the opposite case uh, in uh, one of the president's last. Uh, uh, State of the Union addresses. He he said before we blow through the surplus with these big tax cuts for the wealthy, let's save Social Security first. Right. That became a blocker uh, to the Republicans being able to move uh, legislation through the Hill. So we were both uh, operating to stop them from doing bad things, but most importantly to try to do some good things and and to get uh, the right uh, uh, ideas and investments uh, uh, moving forward. And so our job really was was that. Uh, there were obviously uh, moments in which, um, whether it was the opportunity uh, for public announcement or uh, the opportunity for uh, for the vice president to uh, be engaged in in, in a policy uh, that he had been personally engaged with, we were uh, trying to be supportive of that. But really, uh, our first um, task uh, was to make sure that the country was succeeding. And in that context, make the argument that let's keep it going. And, um, as you noted, uh, the vice president had, uh, I think, uh, gotten some advice from his advisors that, you know, it was, it was important to kind of separate from the president. Um, you can question that. Make of that Uh, what we will. I guess you, (laughs) you, You can question that in retrospect. I think, uh, the vice president, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of his and, and I think he, uh, was a, uh, great, um, a leader, uh, f- uh, for the American people. And, uh, uh, like the last campaign I was involved with, with Hillary, uh, he won the popular vote, but, was, right. but uh, fell short in the electoral
2: college. Right. Well, we hate to cut off this amazing conversation, but you have a panel to do uh, okay. over at Gopley Bormal Lounge, and so many more people will get to hear your amazing stories. But thank you so much for spending a few minutes talking to us. We really appreciate it.
4: Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. And welcome back Thanks. to Georgetown. Yeah, yeah. Go Hawaiians. <laughs>
2: Thanks so much for listening to the podcast this week. Uh, This serves as the official conclusion to the hashtag Clinton 25 uh, weekend extravaganza. We uh, hope you enjoyed uh, all of the panels if you're able to make them. I hope you enjoyed the keynote if you're able to see that uh, either online or in person. Uh, It was a privilege and honor to see him speak. Uh, And everyone who was involved in the panel was absolutely fantastic. And we loved every bit of it. So I hope you guys got to enjoy some of it.
0: Highly recommend going on to Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service website and Facebook page if you wanna check out you know, the entirety of every single panel. Um, President Clinton's Q&A um, and address, all of that is found online. Um, they're all very fun and very interesting.
1: And also a quick shout out to the students who literally lined up at 8 p.m. the night before uh, in Healy Hall uh, to see Bill Clinton speak about 20 hours in advance of his actual speech. That is some commitment to wanna be the very first people and then, to nobody's surprise, Bill Clinton uh, worked the rope line after the speech. So those lucky students who, uh, who. All that time waiting, did get to shake his hand.
0: Respect. Yeah, guys not forgotten how to be a good politician. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, with that, we again would love if you engage with us on social media at fly the wall pod. Shot us an email at fly the wall podcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, politics.choretown.edu slash fly the wall pod. We're all very consistent here and on message here at fly the wall. Uh, and we cannot wait to hear from you again soon. And we will be releasing an amazing pod uh, for your Thanksgiving travel leisure uh coming up next weekend so make sure you check that out you won't want to miss it all right uh we will see you all next week so as you may have heard christian did get five
0: words of the president of the united states christian what were they frankly i couldn't even like no. i was so like awestruck by him i like remember he talked a little bit about his like gussa election uh and like how he lost but like i literally couldn't even tell you what the entire conversation was about
2: he speaks very softly
0: yeah i was on like the end of the line for the
1: group picture and was like awkwardly ushered out before this conversation even happened so i didn't
2: it was a weird little circle he had his hand on christian's shoulder he was like breathing down my neck like right next to me it Mm -hmm. was it was quite a, a situation but i will say he's of average height which is important to note not all presidents are superhumanly tall uh, he's very old and frail, which comes with the age, I assume, but pleasant guy, friendly smile and, uh, you know, really a, a guy that, uh, I would want to get a beer with as his campaign uh, messaging was back in the day.
1: And I mean, like speaking of his age, he was not pleased to be reminded that he graduated his, like next year will be his 50 year reunion, wow. uh, from graduated
2: Years.
0: from Georgetown. So he's not happy at all about that. No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you could eat visibly on stage. Well, come back soon, Bill.
0: Bye, Bill.